This poem is made from the language of people who live and work on the dart. Over the past two years, I've been recording conversations with people who know the river. I've used these records as life models from which to sketch out a series of characters, linking their voices into a sound map of the river, a song line from the source to the sea. There are indications in the margin where one voice changes into another. These do not refer to real people or even fixed fictions. All voices should be read as the river's mutterings. A dot O. got to read it like the river's mutterings are okay yeah. i didn't catch fixed fictions the first time i read that that's interesting isn't it mm. yeah. welcome to the curiously specific book club the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books every episode we take a book out into the wild to see whether the world of fiction or in this case poetry matches up to the real world Hello, my name's Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and a producer of Immersive Experiences. Uh, my name's Lloyd Shipp and I'm a writer and digital producer. And today we are immersing ourselves in water. We didn't know, did we? No, there's a, lo- there's a lot of wild swimming in the area where we, where we were, but we didn't do it. Didn't see anybody else doing it either, to be fair. It was probably a bit early in the year, quite yeah. chilly. Okay. But, well, when you say you didn't see them, I think because they wander off into the sort of less populated areas of the River Dart, which is what we're talking about. And we're doing a, a long-form poem in the form of a book called Dart. Dart. By Alice Oswald. Alice Oswald, the Oxford Professor of Poetry, I'll she have you know. the first female Oxford Professor That's of Poetry. That's right, yes. Ruth Bedell was going to be, but that went a bit... There I was think a, she might have been for four days, actually. There was a kerfuffle. This is a, say, how many pages is the favourite Oh, yeah, we like to say how many pages. It's, it's nice four, and short, really. It's 48 pages. Only 48 no, pages. No, but it's one poem, right? And it, it yeah. tells... Well, although it's split into two sections, I think, isn't it? Yeah. It follows the, the dart from the source of the West Dart down to Dartmouth. Well, actually, to Mew Rock. Yes, out, right out to uh, sea. Right out to sea in the, in the, outside the mouth of the Dart at Dartmouth. Yeah, so for us, it seemed like a no-brainer to do something like this. It starts at the, a very fixed point, the source, and yeah. it ends at a very fixed point, the Muse boat. Muse yeah, boat. The so thing, why wouldn't we go there? Well, th- while we were doing it, and uh, I remember the, the, the main advice I can remember from in the Scouts, mm. if you're lost on a moor, the main advice was don't follow the river down. Oh, really? Yes. Why? Because it will take the easiest and therefore steepest route. Oh. Well, so good. you were never given that advice, which became clear out on the moor, actually. <laughs> that makes, no, now things make more sense to me. <laughs> Why don't we just go out on the moor then? Who's this moving alive over the moor? An old man seeking and finding a difficulty. Has he remembered his compass, his spare socks? Does he fully intend going in over his knees off the military track from Oakhampton, keeping his course through the swamp spaces and pulling the distance around his shoulders? And if it rains, if it thunders suddenly, where would he shelter, looking around and all that lies to hand? is his own bones. Tussocks, minute flies, wind, wings, roots. He consults his map, a huge rain-coloured wilderness. Wow. Well, we didn't come from Oakhampton. I'm an old man seeking and finding a difficulty. Don't call me that. And you are the difficulty. Don't call me that. 
Well, we've recorded in some places, Mr. Wright. Yeah. But I think this is maybe the most spectacular in some ways. We're uh, several kilometres into Dartmoor, from, from Postbridge. Yes. We're in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness. That visit where it said tussocks and midges. Yeah. This is it, right? And gorse. Yeah. And if you hadn't worked it out already, the uh, noise you can hear is the River Dart. The East Dart. The East Dart. We haven't met the West Dart yet. Now, you reckon we've still got... You yeah. still have to go another five miles north from here yeah. to reach the actual source of the Dart. That's right. At Cranmere Pool, right? Yes, that's right. Which is a long way. We're not doing that. <laughs> We're not doing that. We're two old men. No facing difficulties I'd do it if I had a helicopter but I don't think I'd do it on foot well, like, five I, miles there and five miles back if we had more time because obviously we're if always, we had a whole day we're and always it was in the a middle bit of, of a rush here when we're making these things I would go do it but mainly because I'd like to go and find Ted Hughes's memorial plaque which is sited just by Cranmere Pool and it is sited deliberately in one of his supposedly favourite spots which is the source of not just the, the East Dart, but two other rivers, I believe, were from the same bit of land in Dartmoor, drift out from there. And he was a keen... He's a poet, we know that, don't we? The poet laureate, Ted Hughes. But he was also a keen angler and walker, so he loved this landscape. To some extent, I think Ted Hughes has to be part of the conversation about nature poetry and Dartmoor and water because he did a compendium called River, which I bought only the other day. It's very it good. good. Yeah, so despite what may I, I slightly worry that we're talking about a poet, the first Oxford professor of poetry, who's a woman, Yes, Alice Oswald, and we've ended up talking about an old white man. Uh, Two yes. old white men talking about an old white man again. Well, when Alice Oswald gets a memorial plaque, we'll go and walk out to her <laughs> memorial plaque. No, you're right to say that. that this is but about I agree Alice that Ted Oswald. Hughes is important. But, um, but it's a good landmark for where it starts. I, the funny story about it is, of course, when he died and they said, we're going to put a plaque in one of his favourite secret places on Dartmoor where it will be slowly hidden by the grass and no one will ever know it's there but the spirit of Ted will be alive. Yeah. And within 18 months, someone had geotagged it and put it on the internet. I was going to say, and then geocaching came and along. And now it's on the Google Maps very good and now everybody goes there everybody goes there so it's been ruined by people so we're close we're close but no cigar and we've got a whiff of Dartmoor about us well we've definitely feel? got some Atmos it's a bit uncanny Dartmoor I've never been out this far on it myself not a big walker yeah the ground underfoot is uncertain yes the landscape is infinite it's sort of blank the distances are, are entirely unpredictable and you I mean you said to me we've got a kilometer to go and I'm like okay <laughs> I don't know how any means of triangulating you know? that now you can tell by the walls hopefully it's very unsettling actually and sort of magical and, and weird and alien and the river here is it's completely black here it's about what three four meters across mm -hmm. rocks always you could probably wade across it quite easily yeah yeah we've just seen an angler going up over the hill and the only thing that's slightly blighting the landscape at the moment is gaggles of teenage Duke of Edinburgh schemers 
That's right, there's several little gangs of them you wandering you, around. You, you brilliantly said, I can smell the links from here. <laughs> and uh, that just about sums it up. So we're not alone. We're not alone. And we might be the old men in difficulty, but I wouldn't want to have there's to rely plenty on, of young men. I wouldn't ha- want to have to rely on that. Like. I thought that too. I yeah. thought, I'm not asking them for help. So this is as far up the darts we're gonna, as we're going to go on this, this adventure. This is where we start. Okay. okay. And, then it's and then it's downstream. Downhill all the way. To Dartmouth. Yes, we're going to go to post. So you're going to walk. I'm just going to lie in the river and let it take me out to sea. Yes, like a log. Like a log. (laughs) So there you were on the moor telling me to stop talking about Ted Hughes. And when I go back and look up about Alice Oswald, the poet, I find that she's a massive fan of said Ted Hughes. Right. Absolutely massive. She's not only has she edited selected poems of Ted Hughes, she's done talks about him... She says about his poem Crow, I love the fact that it's so enigmatically fragmentary, broken off. That's all you have, and it makes people so angry. I remember doing a talk about Ted Hughes, and all the questions were, how can you like Crow? It's not considered very cultivated, not to be passed round a drawing room. I think that's very good, yeah. yeah. I would agree with that. So uh, I like Ted Hughes, and I like Crow. Yeah. I just don't think we should be talking about... Alice Oswald through the lens of Ted Hughes. She seems to do it. (laughs) Anyway, who is Alice Oswald? Who is Alice Oswald? (laughs) She's a poet, Tim. Alice Priscilla Lyle Oswald, née Keane, daughter of Charles William Lyle Keane, and she's quite posh, Lady Priscilla Mary Rose Curzon. Yes. So she comes from quite posh um, stock, I would say. True. Yes, Um, she does. Her mum is a rather famous garden designer. Well, Mary she was King. a gardener. Alice was a gardener. Yes, I think that's quite important, isn't I it? I think it's quite important. There's a very lovely interview with her by Susanna Herbert from 2012 in uh, in The Guardian. And she says about being a gardener, When I was young, I composed in bed without writing and had a little notebook that I hid in a bush, so I jotted it all down in the next morning. I only went public 20 years later when I started sending things out. I never meant to be a full-time poet. I started out as a gardener, an ideal job for a poet, because your head is left free. Interesting, I thought it was quite nice. Yes. So she's not, though, a nature poet. Or she doesn't like being called a nature poet. Does she not? Has she explicitly said that? Yes. And now this is an interview between her and Max Porter on the whitereview.org. She says, I have quite a problem with the nature poet label, mostly because it might become a name I could wear comfortably and never have to face the confusions that spring up between poems. I'm not a nature poet, but I admit I do love the company of plants. So this is where we go back to the gardening. She says that... There's an estuary walk I do almost every day at different times according to the tide. Sometimes I do it at night, which gives me a very intimate idea of the lives of plants. I can watch every movement of the gesture of a leaf uncurling through a week. I'm addicted to this slow performance. It reminds me that the human perspective is partial. Mm. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Presumably still lives down that part of the world. Well, I don't know. Presumably she lives in Oxford now. We don't know. Where do you live, Do you know what? Famously, there are no estuaries in Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the furthest away from the sea in England or something like that. Well, we're going to have to do a demerit on um, curiously specific points, (laughs) by the way, because the dart estuary isn't an estuary. We'll come to that later. (laughs) (laughs) Is this where we had the... um, what was the one that wasn't a river? Yeah. The Humber. <laughs> yeah. The Humber's hum- not a river and the dart is an estuary. Yeah, that's right. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. we're going to talk about the River Dart later. We'll get I've got back my to that. puzzled face on. Anyway, <laughs> she's published quite a lot of poetry now in the last yes. twenty four years. She uh, first collection of poetry was uh, the Thing in the Gapstone Style, was sh- uh, shortlisted for a Forward Poetry Prize. And she's won T. lots Prize. of prizes, hasn't she? But Dart, which was her second collection, mm-hmm. won the T. S. Eliot Prize. Yes, in two thousand and two. Yes, that's when it was published, 2002. Yeah. So we'll have to talk about 2002. Yeah. She's a little bit uh, diffident about it these days, I'd have to say. Oh, really? In the interviews I've seen, because she's moved on. She's she got has her, moved she, on. She, she's, she, that, was, that was her then and her poetry then. Yeah. And probably the other work that's quite seminal is her performance poem, Memorial. Right. Which she apparently performs live uh, from memory, not from a script. And she's very happy with the idea that it might slightly change in each performance. Well, I, re- I listened to her first uh, lecture as Oxford Professor of Poetry. Good on you. And she spoke very well about uh, poetry being something that should be heard rather than read. And also something that kind of, you know, there's a, there's a relationship between the speaker and the listener the, the poetry, the poet, the poem rather actually exists in that space. Yeah. So if she, she, um, when she was doing the lecture, she made quite a big point of not putting the poem she was reading up on the screen behind her, which is normally what you do when you're giving a poetry lecture, apparently. I and see. she said, "I'm not going to do that because it's important that you respond to poetry through your ears rather than your eyes." It's very. It was really. It was really interesting and impressive to, talking about that kind of. She's um, a, she's a great classicist, so she's a massive fan of Homer. She's um, a massive fan of Homer. Yes, I think she's translated Homer. She's also oh. a fan, according to this Guardian interview, of Milton. Oh, right. So in 2012, she was organising a 12-hour reading of Paradise Lost in Totnes. Blimey, that's an endurance <laughs> test. Crikey. <laughs> they performed all 12 books in Totnes so that in the, that summer, so this is 10 years ago. She's also a big fan of Beckett. Yeah. And Samuel Johnson. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, the, I didn't know And the that. last person she mentions, actually, in this interview is Patti Smith. Ah, uh, yes. Well, she's I got like the same pa- haircut. I like pa- Well, this is quite nice. I like Patti Smith's lyrics and sometimes think I could be influenced by them, but she has a kind of cool that's beyond me. Oh. <laughs> well, she's definitely styled her look on Patti Smith. Yeah. I feel that's de- definitely for sure. There's definitely. Yeah. I, with, before you'd even told me that, I was thinking that yeah. when, when you watch her in the video. Thinking, well, the other, Who is she reminding me of? The other great poet, obviously, when I think of as uh, Patti Smith, whenever, is, is Pam Ayres. Oh, Yeah. Have Big never, influence. Have you never seen the fantastic alternative cover of Horses with Pam Ayres' face superimposed and it's just called Horses? <laughs> it's very good. That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> now, this business about reading out loud and performance, she says, this is in the White Review as well, I originally took to reading my poems out loud because I found people didn't read the tunes properly on the page, Lloyd. A tune, to me, is a tension. Its ending is stretched from its beginning... And you can't cut it without losing that tension. But I've heard people reading poems slackly, (laughs) like loose rubber bands. And that's one of the reasons I almost can't bear to put the poems in books anymore. (laughs) There is something a little bit austere about her, isn't there? Like Patti Smith, I suppose. Uh, Yeah. Um, So uh, she's going to have a bit of a cringe in a moment, isn't she? When we start reading it out by the river. We're not making it sound fun, are we? Well, the... The fun in this this one, listener, is going there. Is oh, the absolutely. Landscape. Yeah, the yeah. landscape's astonishing. Yeah. And the other fun thing about reading this poem, and particularly reading it out loud, is that it's a, re- a response to the sound of water. Yeah. It's, it's very watery, and it's attempting to kind of live in 
yeah. and within the sound of the moving water. I think it's very immersive, Tim. It's very immersive, and she, you know, talking finally about Alice Oswald. I think we're going to find, if you ever read any of her other poems, they'd be radically different to Dart. I think every time she comes up with new work, it's a different approach. Yeah, that's what she likes to do. Yeah, and because she herself says she's like water, I'm very interested in water. I'm interested in the way that it is a natural art form. It actually pictures the world for you. You walk outside and you are suddenly able to see a flat world reflected in the river. It's almost like nature's way of representing the world to you. But I think perhaps more than that, I am an incredibly restless person and I really admire the way water sheds itself all the time. I learn a lot from that. I aim to be as fluid as water if I can be. I don't like setting into one kind of character. I like to shed myself as I go along. Two places I've seen eels. Bright whips of flow like stopper waves the river curve slides through. Trampling around at first, you just make out the elver movement of the running sunlight three foot under the road judder you hold and breathe contracted to an eye-quiet world while an old dandelion unpicks her shawl and one by one the small spent oak flowers fall then gently lift a branch brown tag and fur on every stone and straw and drifting burr when like a streamer from your own eyes iris a kingfisher spurts through the bridge whose axis is endlessly in motion as each wave photos its flowing to the bridge's curve. If you can keep your foothold snooping down, then suddenly two eels let go, get thrown, tumbling away downstream, looping and linking. Another time we scooped a net through sinking silt and gold and caught one strong as bike chain stared for a while then let it back again I never pass that place and not make time to see if there's an eel come up the stream I let time go as slow as moss I stand and try to get the dragonflies to land their gypsy coloured engines on my hand gypsy coloured engines it's very How good, good is isn't that? it very good so the bridge we're talking about we're sitting on a bench, another great bench, oh. at Post Bridge, which is the uh, first time that the road crosses the Dart. And there's two bridges, actually. There's a road bridge, which is absolutely magnificent, stone bridge with three arches, four arches. And then just about 20 metres downstream of that, there's a clapper bridge, which is essentially four piles of rocks with three gigantic flat rocks laid on top of them. And it's been there since the Middle Ages, apparently. Been there since the Middle Ages. And when we arrived, there was a chap fishing underneath the bridge. He just left now with his waders walking up to the that's street. That's right, he was just doing some gentle fly fishing just by the bridge. And we think that's where they're talking about catching eels, right? Yes, I think under this bridge. Under this very bridge. Eels are caught all the way along here. We're going to go later down to another abbey where the monks are quite keen on eels. You made me eat an eel once. I did on the Keel Canal. It was horrible. It was delicious. It was absolutely disgusting. I absolutely loved it. It's like eating old shoe leather. Oh, oh, it was 
It was a delicacy. Ugh. I don't know what you're talking about. It was, ugh, unbelievable. I like all forms of seafood, apart from eel. And, I feel and your six-year-old self said that at and some octopus. point. I can't eat octopus anymore. I eat all kinds That's of foods, but not eel. No. It's disgusting. Now, look, we came off the moor. We, we had we've, a good we feel for, like, coming off the moor, the wilds of the moor. Well, we walked about three kilometres down the river, haven't we? Yeah. From where we were first recording. I got a bit lost looking for mobile phone signal because I wanted to book my table for dinner. <laughs> yeah. We're such, we're such outdoorsy types. <laughs> it's a lovely spot down here. We're just below the road. I'm looking down the river... It's wider here. It's probably 10 metres across here. I see gorse, trees up ahead. It's heading down. There's a gap in the hills. It's heading down towards that gap in the hills. Yeah. Heading down into South Devon. We've got here late enough there's nobody here as well. Well, we did actually. While you were reading, about 20 Duke of Edinburgh award schemers walked past you up on the pavement. Good. I hope there's improving for them. There's a place for poetry in the Duke of Edinburgh. Where is the poetry module? (laughs) Exactly. I'll tell you who did get lost up here. Yes. Jan Koo. Yes, the Jan Koo's mentioned in the poem. Yes, he is. And Just uh, before quite the early on. section, yeah, quite early yeah. on. Yeah, it says, Rain, not much of a morning, routine work, getting the buckets out and walking up the cows. I know you, Jan Koo. A wind on a deep pool. Cows know him. I know who I am. I come from the little heap of stones up by Post Bridge. You'll have seen me feeding the stock. You can tell it's me because of the wearing action of water on bone. Now, this is the little old folk tale. Oh, is it? It is. That Jan Koo was a young milk cow herder up on the moor, and every night he heard his name being called across the moor as if somebody needed help. Jan Koo! Jan Koo! That would be unsettling, right? Yeah, that would be unsettling, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that? Lloyd Jebber! <laughs> I think, uh, I think J- Jan Koo may have had a slightly more onomatopoeic name for these purposes. Yeah, and do you know who it was? Uh, it was an owl? No, what happened was he walked off the third day at night, it happened, and said, I must go and see what, who it is and see if they need help. Yeah. And he never came back. Oh, so we don't know who it was? We do, because yeah. the other farmers knew that it was the Piskies. Oh, the Piskies. Or, as we know them in London, the Pixies. The Pixies, yeah. But the Piskies of the moor. The Devonian Piskies. The river Piskies. Okay. They call from the river and lure you down there and then you never come back. Right. So, watch out. Well, I will watch out. Because tomorrow, the, you we've gonna... got a long bit of river to do. There might be plenty of Piskies Have you brought around. your Pisky mask? <laughs> I fear you probably have. Boy, I think if I heard Lloyd Jebber, the last thing I would do is go out and see what the source of it was. Help me, Lloyd! Help me, Lloyd! Well, that was Tim Wright doing his man in a box impression. So I think uh, I think we're moving on from Postbridge now, are we? Yes, what we need to do now... Is have some dinner. Is have some dinner, <laughs> yeah. No, but our and next stop is where the two rivers meet. We dart shall, meet. We shall be having a conversation between the East Dart and the West Dart. Oh, I should look forward to that. Two types of water would it sound co-mingling. Like, would it sound like Jan Koo? Lord <laughs> I'm not going to be down to sleep tonight.
You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to hear the second part of our adventure with Alice Oswald's dart, you can hear it right now. It's on the server waiting for you if you subscribe to our Patreon page. Yes, just go to Patreon and search for Curiously Specific and there you will find not just your part two with no ads, but also photos of our trips. And a lot of extensive show notes, all the information we give you, we, we, we will publish the sources. So you can go and see the videos and read the web posts. It's all very convenient. Very convenient. Also, you'll be doing the map for this one. So it'd be, oh, yes, it's it'd be lovely and artistic. So head over to patreon.com, search for Curiously Specific. If you pay £2, you get all that. If you pay £5, oh. you get to be an exclusive member behind the red velvet rope of our Discord server. Yes, and on there we do actually post live pictures of our field trips and discuss where we're going and why we're going, and also books we might do in the future. So you can have a bit of input into where we might might go. We don't necessarily go where you say you'd want us to go, because that would be foolish. Crazy. Some of those suggestions have been expensive sounding. Well, going to Istanbul I, yeah, I yeah. in three yeah, days. Or Constantinople. I'm not sure that's a good idea. Yeah, and we also have a general like-minded chat about this and that. Yes. We've had chat this week about uh, recycling, people liking to go down the down the recycling centre and steal things. That's you, me. You had some fans doing that. <laughs> Gentrification uh, in Battersea and London in general. We talked about, talk about bricks. We had a good conversation about bricks this week. <laughs> it's all been good. It's kind of the stuff you'd expect to find on this podcast's <laughs> Discord server. So if you'd like a conversation about bricks, join us. Now back to the podcast. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brian Jones. Hey, Brian. 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 I'm not Brian. I'm just trying to reach you. Cry me river, cry me river, thrown together, there's no one, there's no use looking, cause you're the one, you're the one, look, look, there's water, H2O, water, cry, she used to cry a lot, she shows that she was sorry, hands to face, feet were soaking wet, cry, cry, come here, come here, I'll tell you a story. Come here. Now look at me. Sometimes I love you so much, I want to jump at you and rip out all your teeth. Cry, 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 continue. Sway with eyes shut.
Dart meet, a mob of waters, where East Dart smashes into West Dart, two wheels gnarling and recoiling and finally knuckling into balance in that brawl of mud waves. The East Dart speaks White Slade and Babony. The West Dart speaks a wonderful dark fall from Cut Hill through Wistman's Wood. Put your ear to it. You can hear water cooped up in moss and moving slowly uphill through lean-to trees where every day the sun gets twisted and shut with the weak sound of the wind rubbing one indolent twig upon another. And the West Dart speaks roots in a pinch of clitters. The East Dart speaks coppice and standards. The East Dart speaks the Gavla Brook and the Walla Brook. The West Dart speaks the Blacker Brook that runs by the prison of loggerheads lying next to one another on the riverbed, wrangling away into this valley of oaks. That is fantastic, isn't it? This whole business of reading out literature in the place that it's describing doesn't get any better than this. It's very buzzy. It's really great. We are at the meeting of the East Dart and the West Dart. There's not a lot else to say. (laughs) It's um, it's very, very beautiful. We're here on a Saturday evening at about six o'clock with the sun just going down behind the trees. Yeah. There are sort of really big rocks in the water where the two meet. trees in the water. Yeah, where the two meet. And you really do see the West Dart rushing down from our right. And then in front of us, the East Dart is a bit wider, I think, and a a little bit more forceful. And then the two of them clutter over these amazing rocks. And they join up to make a a A much bigger river, suddenly, suddenly much bigger. Yeah. Staggering. And at Dartmeet, just above the East Dart, there's another fantastically ancient old Clapper Bridge there as well that kids were running around on. Also, brilliantly, on the way down into here, there was a little pixie museum. Yeah, the pixies. The piskies are here. They seem to be garden gnomes rather than pixies. Piskies, well, they may be during the day. (laughs) Oh, I see. Well, should we get off before the The sun goes down? The sun's going down. (laughs) And the piskies come out. Jan cool. Jan cool. The reason there's not a lot to say, I would say, is I had loads of notes about all of these places, but they're on the internet. Yeah. And stupid Dartmoor doesn't have internet connection. Yeah, of course you did. Stupid Dartmoor. Yeah, yeah. You had loads of notes. I usually have loads you of. D- you don't know my girlfriend. She goes to another school. <laughs> well, as I said to you, the thing is, what I'm going to need to do now is just do some straight lying about places rather than reading out lies that yeah. I found on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Make up some. So lies. it's not much different. Make up some lies. The poetry and the water sound. Let's leave it at that. So I mentioned that the River Dart doesn't have an estuary. You were surprised by that, weren't you? You, Yes, you you rather threw me on that one. It wasn't quite the Humber's not a river, because I kind of sort of knew that. The fact that there's a place called Dartmouth. I know. It's weird, right? Which suggests there's an estuary. So please explain. Well, I... I'm only going by an article I read on buythedart.co.uk. Right. And don't forget, listener, that if you pay us £2 and support us on Patreon, all the links we mention will involve you in one handy post. Yep. It says here, although many people refer to the River Dart estuary, in inverted commas, <laughs> in geographical terms, it is technically classified as a RIA, R-I-A, 
Rias are often referred to as drowned river valleys and form when sea levels rise relative to the land. When this happens, valleys which were previously at sea level become submerged. Right. So okay. the estuary is usually formed by the river flowing out, isn't it? Yeah. A rear is formed by the sea coming flowing in, in. Yeah. basically. Yeah. So it's a rear. It's dart rear. It's diarrhea. It's diarrhea. <laughs> but surely that would be, doesn't that mean the Thames doesn't have an estuary? Well, that might be right. It might be the Thames Ria. They could rebrand it and everyone wants to have a house there. <laughs> Very good. I mean, the whole place is an incredible natural phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. As we've travelled through, you could yeah. see that. Now, it has its own charter, by the way, in order to try and protect it. Mainly at Dartington, because, of course, there's a big college there, Dartington Hall. Yeah. But it says here, water is a living entity that we all share and benefit from, while the banks and riverbed of the River Dart are owned... The health of living water is a common pool resource entrusted to us all. The movement of water through its cycle of rain, rivers, seas and clouds is essential for the maintenance of all life. And there's a document here on bioregion.org.uk which you can print out and sign and send, send back to support this charter. We, the people who live, work and play here, name ourselves as stewards of the water in our catchment. So it's got its own rights. That's one way of looking at the world, okay? I think there's another way of looking at the world where the river actually supports livelihoods and and work. Yes. So I also found an interesting article in bythedart.co.uk, huh? which was an interview with David Pakes, who was an old police superintendent and now commercial fisherman. He's got some in- incredible data in here, actually. He fished the dart for 40 years, has seen huge changes in that period. Yeah. Once a thriving commercial fishery, the dart's fish stocks, in particular salmon and brown trout, have declined dramatically over the past century. Currently, even sea trout stocks are giving cause for concern. In 1900, the combined rod and net salmon catches in the year amounted to 5,000 fish wow. in a year. Okay. By 2006, that figure was 200, and with most of that number caught and released, because that's how they do it now. Until the late 80s, 15 netting licenses were issued each year, providing a living for many families. Now there are only three salmon nets on the river. This is 10 years ago. Gosh. So it's declined as a commercial river yes. uh, in terms of fishing. The voices in the poem... They're about poachers, aren't they? But yeah. there's, there's swimmers. But they, yeah, there is some industry there because it still talks about the, the dairy that we're going to come to. Yes. It also talks about the water treatment plant and the guy who tests the water there. Then we get into the fishermen, and pe- but then also the yachties, the people who are going to go and sail around the world. Well, it's a classic tension, isn't it? It's a classic tension between a waterway being a leisure facility, yeah. a commercial facility, and increasingly an environmental asset that needs to be protected they're not actually mutually dependent they're actually almost mutually exclusive on each other so there's a bit of a battle going on isn't there's there always a bit I of a battle the, the, the paddle boarders will win will they <laughs> i don't know if they will down here actually because that area is full of people who are quite keen on environmental issues absolutely no i'm including the paddle boarders in that the, oh, the right. paddle boarders would see themselves as environmentally sound river users i think well, Totnes, we went to Totnes, not only briefly. It says there in the, on its Wikipedia page, it has a sizable alternative and new age community and is known as a place where one can live a bohemian lifestyle. Oh, God. That <laughs> yeah. Sounds awful. And, of course, it's a very ancient place as well because according to the curiously specific hero, Geoffrey of Monmouth. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Well, this features in the poem, doesn't it? She says this is where Brutus came ashore. That's right. And went off to kill a giant. 
apparently there is a Brutus stone well, on a bit the of background, A bit of background. A so small... Jeffrey, Jeffrey Monmouth wrote, and we've discussed this before, yeah. that Britain was founded by Brutus. Who yes, was a, a, Brutus of Troy. A, a Trojan yeah. who uh, escaped the Trojan Wars and came to Britain with a crew. Yes. And they cleared Britain of the giants, and he was the first king of England. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yes. It's and that's why, it's, that's why it's called Britain. Historical fact. That's why it's called Britain. That's why it's called Britain. Yeah. Yeah, after and Brutus. He stepped off the shore onto a stone, a small granite boulder that's still there yeah. in Totnes, the Brutus Stone. Amazingly, he was a poet as well, because he, apparently when he stepped off the boat, he said, here I stand and here I rest, and this town shall be called Totnes. Wow. Do you think that's he said that? not a great poem, is it? And then he beat the big old giant, Gog Magog. He did. So he do you think there were giants up on the moor? There were lots of giants in England at the time. Were there? Yeah. He killed them all. A giant of history who lived there, yeah. and you'll be interested in this. Go on. Who lived in Agatha Christie's house before she did? You got any idea? Who lived in Agatha Christie's house? You, yeah, you mean you, the house she you, moved you, to when she became famous, Green, Greenway? Greenway, yeah. yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Who lived in that house? I don't know. This is a bit of history that you're going to enjoy. During the Elizabethan era, Greenway House was owned by Sir Humphrey Gilbert, his son-in-law was Sir Walter Raleigh. Oh. Now, this is going to be good for your crisp fetish. Oh, we had crisps in the last episode. Well, you've got crisps now, mate. Excellent. Because basically, on that hillside down there, it's alleged that Sir Walter Raleigh experimented with the cultivation of potatoes oh. on the land west of the property, looking yeah. down over the river. Which he brought from North America. Yeah. So the first potatoes... Oh, were grown on that hill that we, we, we were walking there on. There should be a church there or something. <laughs> a shrine. <laughs> a shrine to the to the crisp. The walkers sponsor a shrine. You should probably explain why we're suddenly talking about Greenway, because it's, it's on the river, right? Ah, yes, that's a good point, yes. Greenway's the estate that Agatha Christie moved to after she became famous yeah. and uh, did it up and you know lived there very happily for 40 years or so. That's right. It's on the River Dart. And we didn't get to go to see it, but that was a disappointment for you, isn't it? And now, well, particularly now I find about the potato thing. <laughs> Imagine eating a bag of crisps at Greenway. That'd be historical reenactment. History in the making. There's got to be an episode there. It is the story of the falling rain to turn into a leaf and fall again. It is the secret of a summer shower to steal the light and hide it in a flower. And every flower a tiny tributary that from the ground flows green and momentary is one of water's wishes and this tale hangs in a seed head smaller than my thumbnail. If only I, a passerby, could pass as clear as water through a plume of grass, to find the sunlight hidden at the tip, turning to seed, a kind of lifting raindrip. Then I might know, like water, how to balance the weight of hope against the light of patience. Water, which is so raw, so earthy strong and lurks in cast iron tanks 
and leaks along, drawn under gravity towards my tongue, to cool and fill the pipework of this song, which is the story of the falling rain that rises to the light and falls again. Oh, this is amazing. I wish it could record smells. Smell the coal and the steam. on the other side for the rest of the ride. Yeah, over the darts. Superb. I've got your little treat here, haven't this I? This is just amazing. So Tim has surprised me with a... He's booked as a, uh, a return trip on the South Devon Railway, which is an authentic standard gauge steam railway. God! It was opened soon after Beeching's cuts. It's been running ever since. We're being pulled by a GWR steam locomotive, which I had the Hornby OO version of. <laughs> so I'm a little bit... We're sitting in a carriage with kind of thick, plush, upholstered seats. I mean, quite old now, so they're a bit... They've lost their springiness. String net luggage racks. Posters of Paynton and Buckfast Abbey. And we're riding alongside the darts. Oh, come on, the train's talking to us now. It's just genuinely amazing. I thought it was just practical that we could just get along the river this way. Well, you get to be closer to the dart than you would on any other form of transport. That's right. It's close on the road. Yeah. You can't walk along there. I don't feel Alice Oswald was a train fan, do you? Do you think she is? I, uh, I did do a search for Alice Oswald train poem. I didn't get a lot of, uh, a lot of hits. Uh, I found a Robert Louis Stevenson poem. Oh, go on. From his children's collection. Oh, please. Published in 1885, volume of poetry of children of Charles Gardner verses. Faster than fairies, faster than witches, bridges and houses, hedges and ditches, and charging along like troops in a battle, or through the meadows, the horses and cattle. All of the sights of the hill and the plain fly as thick as driving rain, and ever again, in the wink of an eye, Painted stations whistle by. It's not charging along, mate. <laughs> it's going quite slowly. Isn't it? It's only seven miles from, isn't it? Seven miles yeah. long. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. They've all got their uniforms on. They've all got uniforms, yeah. The people who young, work here. Well, it's quite a young guy doing kind of guarding. 
duty. Yeah. He's got his waistcoat and his white, crisp, crisp white shirt. Yeah. So she's missed a trick, though, hasn't she? That, well, why hasn't she got on here? Why isn't there a section Can about a the steam train? Steam. <laughs> we're doing it again. We're doing, we're doing what we did to uh, Gwendolyn Riley, aren't we? Yeah. Which is we're turning a, an important work of fiction. Oh, here comes the guard. Here comes the guard. Come in, come in. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, recording, recording, recording some How lovely sounds. So I've got two tickets return. Right. Bought online, is that okay? Lovely, yes, I just... Yeah, just do that. <laughs> yeah, yes. please. I'd love a little dent on there to commemorate it. That would be great. Oh, they're good. You should yeah. have one of those, or you can just dink a phone. Yes. That would be excellent. I, I think I might get charged for one or two damages along the way. Yeah, almost a bit of wear and tear. Yeah, absolutely. Great, thanks. Thank, you. Thank you very much. He sounded a bit German to me. They built this as well, yeah. I thought, he was going to, I thought he was going to ask you for your papers. Ah, uh, have no. a nice trip. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh! You were saying we're turning it into an old man's uh, uh, excursion. We're doing, we're doing a bit of we're Gwendolyn Riley here, aren't we? We're taking a work, a oh. young woman's genius work, yeah. and we're adapting it to our own purposes. And turning it into two old men's day out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I think that using poetry is fungible. Using women's literature to to, to cr create exactly. great days out for old white men. That's our new theme. That's our new stand first. <laughs> so, Tim, what a surprise! I'm still awestruck by how magnificent that experience was. <laughs> it was so great. You probably haven't really listened too much to the extract of you on the train but you're so in heaven it's quite extraordinary <laughs> well i would never been on a full-size steam train before yeah. it was so great you, yeah I think the listener will understand that they, they, I'm hoping they'll be as transported as you were <laughs> very good transported yeah, blimey, like blimey did you like yeah, that it was yeah. an amazing surprise and yeah. also just a brilliant way to see the river just fantastic going on down alongside the river Yeah. so uh, that's the end of part one right I haven't got any surprises for you in part two no of, I know of, uh, well, I have a crisp, scale crisps and trains are going to sustain me for a long time <laughs> so yeah we're leaving part one behind in part two we're going to continue to follow the dart down to the sea yes and well, the not estuary that's right so we're, we're going to visit the Buckfast Abbey we're going to go to the Totnes Hydro Power oh, Centre that was cool and the dairy yeah, that is that mentioned in the cool. poem <laughs> And we're going to go to a boatyard as well. Yeah. And what? in fact, we're going to end at the Mewstone. Well, we're going to the boatyard. is next to an Agatha Christie house, right? So she's like the... Uh, she's haunting this particular episode. Look, I've just created a perfect holiday for you. Agatha Christie, crisps and trains. Yeah. <laughs>